Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Good to have you tune in uh, today as we look at our life, last life lesson in the book of 1 Corinthians. That's it. This is the last one. We're finally at the end. And uh, we studied 1 Corinthians for quite a while. And I think one thing that we can all agree on is that the Corinthian church was a messed up church. It was a bit of a dumpster fire. Okay, no, it was a total dumpster fire. But anyway, they had so many problems happening all at the same time. They were very confused. They were very troubled. And yet still, God still loved them very much. And, and personally for me, it's been very enjoyable and actually very eye-opening for us just to walk through this book. And I, I trust that uh, for you it's been very practical in many different areas as well. Our concluding text here in 1 Corinthians is in chapter 16 and verses 5 to 24. And uh, what we've seen is, is that Paul was the conduit of God's love to this troubled church. And last week we addressed the importance of giving and specifically giving to those in need. And uh, we've also been encouraged, as if you can remember, if you tuned in last week, I encourage people to give to our Christmas fund which will be dispersed both to Living Word Temple in the form of food hampers and toys uh, to the inner city here in Winnipeg, but also on the other side of the world to Manguanini Care Point in East Swatini. Uh, and there it will be distributed in the form of food to uh, care and feed the poor in that poor nation. We still have a couple of weeks to, to go, and so if you can give to these two needy causes, um, you can simply go online and see the details to contribute to the Christmas projects. But right now, we get to our passage, and, and Paul begins to talk about his travel plans. Now, I'm reading this stuff, and, and uh, it was just like I got paused for a moment. Like, I remember those days. Maybe you do too. You remember that, that the meaning of the word travel. Like, this is like pre-COVID, like Thanks, COVID. You've, you've messed up all of our lives, right? Like in March, our hockey team uh, uh, that we pulled together, a bunch of guys here from the church, a bunch of believers, we were going to do this missions trip to Ukraine. Well, it got postponed. And then, of course, in March, globally, everybody's travel plans were abruptly canceled. And um, I'm not sure about you, but I tear up every time Facebook sends me a reminder from 2019 or earlier about some place that I, uh, I, I travel to. I'm not sure. Maybe you feel my pain. I'm not sure. Um, getting emails now. Maybe you're getting this. Emails from airlines saying, you know, we're all in this together. But my question was, where were you when my suitcase was like three pounds overweight, right? Now, maps, right? Travel maps. The, the travel maps that we're looking at now for the weekend, travel ideas is really actually the blueprint of our house. You know, how I can move from the living room to the kitchen. That's about it, right? Because we're in this red lockdown. And we have to now make up our own airport codes for areas of our homes, like the LVG. That's the living room. The BTH, right? That's the bathroom. The BKY, backyard, right? Uh, then there's the MBR, the master bedroom. Sorry, I'm, I'm ranting. What are your plans? Going anywhere lately? Obviously not. I'm not sure about you, but there have been times where I found myself sitting on the floor in front of my front loader washing machine, staring into that round glass window, pretending I was in a plane in the window seat looking over the ocean. Ah, oh, but I digress. I don't know about you, but for me, I think once this COVID ban is lifted, 
you know, these airports, which used to be the meanest places on earth, will probably, for me, be one of the most nicest places in the world once we're allowed to fly again. I'm positive my personal attitude is going to change when I get into the airports. What's that, sir? I'm sorry. Oh, wait, you want me to empty the entire contents of my carry-on bag? Sure, I will. No problem. What's that, ma'am? Oh, you want me to take off all my jewelry and, and the belt that's holding up my pants and the shoes that are concealing the odor of my sweaty socks just for you? No problem. I plan to do that. Or once you get on the plane and, uh, you know, you get to feel that your hips bouncing off the seats and, and people's shoulders and elbows. I, I miss that. I miss that human contact. I don't know about you. Or, or you find your seat and, of course, you look at this person and, is, is that your screaming baby, miss? Oh, please sit. Sit here right next to you. As a matter of fact, I'll gladly give you my seat and I, so I can just sit in the middle. I'm positive my attitude is going to change. And you better believe I'm not going to be rolling my eyes uh, at the flight attendants, but rather I'm going to be paying attention to them, especially when they're giving the life preserver illustration, even though we'll be flying over dry land. And I have to say this, I'll probably clap when we finally land at our destination. But in all seriousness, not being able to travel, when you think about it, is actually the least of our worries during this time. And yet I find it so ironic that the, the first way we see Paul expressing God's love is in his desire to visit the Corinthian church. And here is his last few words to the Corinthians. And Paul begins to talk about his travel plans. So pick up your Bibles and let's read it here in 1 Corinthians, starting with verse 5 in chapter 16. He says, after I go through Macedonia, I'll come to you for I'll be going through Macedonia. Makes sense. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to see you uh, now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, and if the Lord permits, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Paul had other reasons for telling the Corinthians about his plans for the future. Now, for one, Paul's absence was actually a point of contention. We saw that earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 uh, when it said that, you know, some of you become arrogant as though I was not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I, and I shall find out, if not the words of those who were arrogant, but their power. Uh he needed to come back to address some issues. Paul's opponents made a great deal of his absence. And his words uh, about this travel plan now here at the end of the letter become very clear. Now, he doesn't know exactly when he's coming, but he knows he's going to make a plan to show up. Every decision Paul made was not based on some sort of supernatural revelation. Even though, um, you know, it's not like he, he sat there and he waited for God to shine a light on a place and he said, okay, that's the next town that you're going to. Although he did have the odd encounter like that, I believe that when we're looking at these verses in, uh, from 5 to 9, um, Paul made normal decisions and plans. And he waited them out. He was using logic. He was putting it together. He was taking advantage of the situations and determining what is wise and what wasn't. And then he writes in verse 10, he says, When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. 
No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. And I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother, Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now. But now he will go when he has the opportunity. So there's two things that strike me when I read this passage concerning Timothy and Apollos. The first is the strong sense of unity and cooperation that Paul uh, has with Apollos and with Timothy and with other people. There is a unity. There is a cooperation. And in uh, this, uh, this is really in contrast when you think about it, about the uh, fractions and the competition which already existed amongst the leaders and the followers back in chapter 1 to 3 in the Corinthian church. So Paul's about unity. The other guys in the church are all about disunity. And rather than undercutting the ministry of other people, Paul stayed on where, where he was. He encouraged other leaders to go and to minister to the church in Corinth. And so he doesn't cut down these men. Rather, he commends them highly to the church. He treats them with respect. And it's actually a very, it's a contrast to the Corinthians themselves who appeared to build their own empire. They found it necessary to undermine the ministry of other people. And what more could Paul have done or said, really, to enhance, and enhance or strengthen the ministry of these men like Timothy or Apollos? He was positive. He was encouraging. He lifted them up, and he encouraged that church to receive them at the same time. The second thing that strikes me is, is, is Paul's reference to Apollo and, uh, Apollos and uh, Paul's respect, you know, for this Christian leader and uh, 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 the, his perception of how God leads in, in Apollos' life. You know, we've already witnessed that Paul didn't claim um, miraculous or spectacular guidance with respect to his plans to come and visit the Corinthians in the future. You know, he expressed his desire. He expressed his intentions, but with the sensitivity to the fact that you know, God's will may not confirm his plans and that his plans could change. Paul was open to that. But here Paul indicates his humility in reference to the plans of Apollos. He thought a visit by Apollos would be, would be good, but we see that at first Apollos actually disagreed. Paul accepted that. He accepts the judgment of, of Apollos as God's leading. Uh, and he's not so arrogant to assume that his sense of what Apollos should do is actually God's will, which is a whole sermon of itself. Paul then writes, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Now these two verses may not say much at first glance. They appear to you really to sum up the application of all that Paul has been saying in this entire letter. And just as Jesus warned the disciples, you know, uh, to be alert and not to be surprised by his return, Paul is really giving the readers in Corinth the same admonition. In these two verses, Paul unveils what I would say are, are five standing aspects of faith. You know, these five exhortations are are all what the Greek would say present tense imperatives. It demands continuous action. Think about it that way. And therefore, we got to 
realize that God's commands are not, it's not just good advice. They're not optional. It's not like God's commands are, are like a buffet where we can pick and choose what we want. All five of these are commands, and they're incumbent upon me, the believer. So as I read them, I realize that God is speaking through Paul to the church in Corinth, and as I'm reading it, he's also speaking to me. Now, the first four commands sort of have this military metaphors to them, and it, and it encourages the believers, but it's that final command that summarizes all four. The first one, be on guard. Be on your guard. Now, again, this is a command that is a warning to, to watch out. Watch out for those that seek to bring about division. Isn't that interesting? Paul encourages the Corinthians to be watchful regarding danger from inside as well as outside the church. However, most of the problems in Corinth, and I will go so far as this, most of the problems in the churches of our churches today arise from within the community, within the congregation. And so we as believers need to be alert. That expression, be on your guard, sometimes occurs with the anticipation of Jesus' return. That, that may have been Paul's thinking as well when he wrote this, but we should expect the return of Jesus at any time. And our behavior, though, now should reflect constantly God's values, and we should be on guard. Secondly, we need to stand firm in the faith. Again, another military image that urges Corinthians to hold their ground. Stand firm. Hold your ground. Um, frequently combined with the Old Testament, uh, when, when, when God's people were being exhorted to have courage in the face of danger, especially from one's enemies, not to retreat from the enemy. But this command to stand firm has already served as the bookends for chapter 15. If you could go and you look in chapter 15, verses 2, and then again at verse 58, this, this idea of standing firm in your faith, that, uh, that, that term, the faith, actually probably points to both the basics of Christian teaching and our own personal relationship with Jesus. So stand firm in the faith. Don't deviate from uh, the Word of God, from, from the Scriptures. Stay true to them. Hold on to them. Never abandon them. Live them out. You stand firm in the faith. And there are many temptations out there that can actually cause us to depart from the faith. And so we need to be uh, vigilant. We need to be on guard. We need to stand firm. And it says, be strong. Be courageous. And again, these next two commands are taken together. And it they're basically self-explanatory, and Paul uses, the, you know, uh, um, it, the way it's written, be strong is in, in what would be called the passive voice, meaning to be strengthened. So it's a process. We can't strengthen ourselves, right? That's the work of God. We, we have to understand that it's a constant process. The idea of being courageous, the idea of being strong is this idea of process, and our part is to submit ourselves daily to God. And, and none of us, men or women, are uh, intimidated by those who oppose us. Be strong. Be courageous. Understand that there will be oppositions. Don't be intimidated. Be bold for God. Be bold for the Word of God. Take risks for the gospel. Put yourself out there. Go outside your comfort zone. This is what Paul is saying. 
General George Patton, he actually summed it up beautifully, and he said this, courage is fear that has said its prayers. Courage is fear that has said its prayers. We be strong, we be courageous, we stand firm, we be on guard. He's describing to the church what, how we need to act in the position that we find ourselves in that day. And the fifth and final command really is the glue that holds the other four together. Paul then says, let everything be done in love. So you have this military, you have almost an aggressive posturing, but then Paul comes and he says, look, let it all be done with love. You know, the fallen human nature does not do everything in love. You know, uh, and yet God's nature is so different. God is full of love. He does everything in love. Love is selfless. Remember 1 Corinthians 13. Love acts for the sake of others, not for the sake of ourselves. And we're to be like God. Really, we're to, to mirror that. that. That's the image that we're looking for, acting for the good of others and not just the good of ourselves. And I think Paul makes this point very clear by framing this letter's closing. Let everything be done in love. That's in verse 14, and then again we see in verse 24, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. And this love that he's talking about involves both love for God, but also a love for one another. Again, he spent a lot of time on this. He's reminding them the importance of this love. Let everything be framed in love. So you have this posture, you're on guard, you're alert, you're ready to go, you're strong, you're courageous, but you have love. And Paul challenged the readers earlier with the fact that knowledge is puffed up while love builds up. Another, again, another idea of what's going on. Love is the greatest motivating force for our ethical behavior. You know, there's this old adage, and it's still true today, that people need to know how much you care before they care how much you know. You know, uh, how appropriate it is even today in our pandemic world. Love is the remedy for church ills and the ills of the world in which we find ourselves in. And Paul brings that to our attention once again. He continues on in verse 15 where he says, You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. And so I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they had supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Now again, the church at Corinth is divided. And, and, and one of the principal reasons that the church was divided was because of its leadership. In his next letter to the Corinthians... In 2 Corinthians 11, 12 to 15, Paul actually begins to reveal the shocking fact that some of its leaders are, are false prophets. He calls them out. And he goes so far as to say that they're actually serving Satan. So you can imagine hearing that <laughs> in the church, what kind of disruption took place. But that's the next letter. You know, you got to think about it this way. They're reading the letter that they got from Paul, and if the church at Corinth had the wrong kind of leaders... Paul's not going to end his letter without pointing it out to them that the kind of leaders that they need are guys like these three he just mentioned. And, and he focuses on three particular leaders as the kind of men who should be in leadership 
in Corinth. And it seems fairly evident that these men were, were not amongst those who were in the so-called official leadership positions of the church in Corinth. Or if they were, they weren't typical of the others who were leaders there. And so Paul turns attention to these men and he commends them to the Corinthian leaders. And he says, look, at these are leaders and they should be acknowledged in such a way. And we need to notice what Paul says about them because it's very important. These were men who were among the first to be led to the Lord through Paul's ministry in Corinth. These men were probably some of the oldest believers in Corinth. And I'm not talking about age. I'm talking about their spiritual age. Paul probably knew these guys and, and trusted their character. They were probably even discipled under his ministry while he was there. And when we look elsewhere in the scripture, we see that Paul sets down qualifications for uh, elders, for leaders within the church. We read that in 1 Timothy where he actually restricts new converts from leadership roles. Why? Well, because they too were immature. They were too inclined to be puffed up with power and with pride. And this is probably the type of leaders that were existing in Corinth right now at this time. And this is probably one of the reasons why the church was in such a mess. So in these six verses, Paul shares five characteristics of spiritual maturity. Five things that should stand out and hit us right between the eyes. Number one was service. Number two is submission. Then there's friendship, hospitality, and affection. And all five of these are essential aspects of, of growing into maturity in, in God and in our relationship with God's people, with each other. Service. When we read this passage, we see that Stephanus and her family were, like I said, Paul you know, uh, some of Paul's first converts, first fruits as he calls them. They had given themselves carelessly to the Corinthians. They were probably loyal to Paul. They may have been uh, the source from where uh, he received some of his information about the conditions of the church. We're not quite sure. Verse 15 states that the household of Stephanus was devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Now, if you're a good old King James per Version person, uh, that, that word devoted is actually translated addicted. They, and, and I actually like this. They, they were serving in ministry so consistently, so regularly, that it was like an addiction. They were hooked on ministry. They were hooked on what God had called them to do. That's not a bad addiction. It's a good one. But this is where they were at. And Paul speaks not only of Stephanus' leadership, but also of his household. And it would seem that the entire household had come to faith. And it would further seem from Paul's words that they, like Stephanus, they also devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So in both 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, we find Paul, again, requires elders and deacons to be evaluated in terms of their leadership, even within their own homes. So the household of Stephanus was evidence for Paul that this man, this guy, look at he's a spiritual leader in his home, and he's proven his ability not only to lead his home, but to lead and serve in the church. So the leadership style of these three men was servant leadership. And Paul commends these men as leaders because they have served in the church at Corinth just as he says as they served him. 
And they are men who help and labor in the work of the ministry to the saints. They cared about people. They served the church. They served the church and Paul by even going to Ephesus to meet Paul. And what we do know is that the existing, or what I would even go so far as say is pseudo-leaders at Corinth were trying to undermine the spiritual health and the validity of the saints in the church there. But not these guys. These guys cared. These guys edified the saints. They lifted up. They encouraged the saints in Corinth. And I also wonder if these men were the ones who delivered a list of questions and concerns, which actually led Paul to write the letter to 1 Corinthians. The next one is submission. Again, when we read in, in Corinthians, we see that the church had a problem with submission to authority. They were competitive. They were stubborn and even arrogant at many times. And many in the church wanted to really just do their own thing. And submission really is not earned by holding an office. It's earned by our godly character and service. And there's no indication that Stephanus was a pastor or even actually a church officer of any shape. He was apparently just an ordinary Christian, just an ordinary guy with extraordinary love. But he deserves as much respect as the other leaders and pastors. There's an old saying, again, mutual submission is the key theme of spirit-filled living. You know, we get that from the idea that all believers are to submit to each other according to Ephesians 5.21. So service, not status, should be the basis for honor in the church. Did you hear me? Service and not status is the basis for the honor in the church. The next one is friendship. Apparently, the, when the financial support for Paul's missionary work dried up, <laughs> and uh, the fact is these three men bailed him out. Uh, they may have brought gifts to Paul while he was in Ephesus. And what we do know is that by their coming to Paul, they refreshed his spirit. Just as they refreshed the spirits of the saints in Corinth, I think one of the finest compliments that can be paid of another Christian, and you think about this, is to say that he or she is refreshing to be around. You know, do you know of people of which I speak? Because I know that there are a lot of people in our church community who are just like that. You know, it, I, I always feel better after being with them. They're a blessing to everyone who comes in contact with them. They, they're just encouraging. They are uplifting. So let me ask you a question. When you enter a room, is there more joy and peace and love than before you arrived. You know, when you leave, is the atmosphere and attitude better? You know, do, do you refresh your fellow believers or do you bring them down? You know, let me ask another question. When, when, when you experience refreshment from other believers, how should you respond? Paul says, you know, such people deserve recognition. Let me just throw maybe some ideas out. Maybe you need to thank people who are refreshing to your soul, other believers. Maybe just write them a note. You know, I'd like to say give them a hug, but you can't really do that. But write them a note. Send them an email. Give them a Facebook message. Just Or pick up the phone. Pick up the phone and tell them how much they mean to you. And don't expect a response. You know, as a pastor, I occasionally had people tell me that, they like our worship gatherings and our church, but they're not making friends in the church. And, you know, you 
pick up different notes from people, and sometimes you tend to assume that it's always the fault of the church when you hear statements like that. And, and I have to be really honest. I used to really take it personally. And, and then I began to notice a trend over time that many individuals, you know, who in the past have approached me with this grievance, they, they didn't want to be involved in a life group. They didn't want to be involved in any type of service. And then it quickly dawned on me that the problem really didn't lie with us as a community, as a church. And that, again, another adage that we don't find friends, we make them. We make them. And I look at our church, I look at our community, and Seoul's a wonderful place to cultivate lifelong friendships, but we must be risk-takers in this process. We must be risk-takers, and we must invest in the body, in the community, in order to reap the benefits of friendship. And some people just aren't prepared to do that. When Paul tells the Corinthians to acknowledge such men, when he's looking at these three individuals, I believe he's almost like nominating them, as it were. Not only these three men, but others who are just like them. And that term acknowledge is literally the word know. And, you know, the same word is employed by Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those things who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instructions, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of the work. Live in peace with one another. Appreciation and respect are certainly due these three men. But Paul seems to have more in mind, and he's indicating that the church, that these three should be recognized or formalized possibly as leaders. You know, Paul didn't look at this troubled church and, and turn to these three guys and said, guys, it's hopeless. You know, you're the only ones in the church who get it. You know, you need to go out, you need to find a new church because this one is hopeless. He doesn't say that. No, he tells the Corinthians to recognize and to uh, emulate the people like them. He, he doesn't tell these three to leave. He tells them to lead. You see, in our consumeristic culture, we tend to think that, you know, this church is deficient in meeting my needs, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to move on and, and find a church that is sufficient. Or we put it another way, we just say, well, I'm not getting fed. Well, maybe instead of moving on because of weakness, maybe we should rise up and help lead to help fix whatever that weakness is. You know, if Stephanus could stay devoted to the Corinthians, think about it. Even if you're not from Seoul, you can stay devoted to your church as well wherever that is. It's the Holy Spirit who makes men elders, according to Acts 20, but it's the church that formally recognizes this divine appointment. We see that in Acts 13. And here is the kind of leadership that the Corinthian church needs with these three individuals. Here is the kind of leadership that every church needs. And I think it is our task as the community of believers to identify and recognize such people. The section also then closes with two additional marks of spiritual maturity. It's hospitality and affection. Paul continues to write. He says, the churches in the province of Asia, send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. 
All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. So greet each other with a holy kiss. Yeah, that goes over well in a pandemic. But the first word there is hospitality. Again, spiritual sign of spiritual maturity is our hospitality. Here you have Aquila and Priscilla. They had opened up their home, and they've hosted a church. Now, according to the New Testament, this dynamic ministry couple lived in at least three different cities. They lived in Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. And in all three places, they had a church in their house. And furthermore, it was in their house that Paul stayed during his very first visit to Corinth, probably for more than a year and a half. Think about it. That's a long time to have somebody living with you, right? And there may be no greater tool for ministry, hear me carefully, than the Christian home. And when this pandemic is over and we can start opening up our doors again, because we've got to look at the home. See, the home is the testing ground for the power of love and acceptance. It serves as a living demonstration of, of God's love for those seeking to be a part of God's family. The value of the home, the value of hospitality. There are many people in our community here at Seoul who have the gift of hospitality. And it's something that our world needs more than ever. And I'm wondering if I can add this. Parents, your children learn about service, servanthood. They learn about our faith being lived out. They learn about hospitality from you in your home. They will also learn about the lack of love and service there as well. They will learn hospitality as they see their parents practice it, but they'll also learn to hold on to their stuff as tightly as they can as they watch their parents do that as well. And as a parent... How are you helping your children learn through observation and practice? How do you practice to live out these characteristics that Paul is telling us, the church, to do? And, of course, finally, we see affection. You know, bickering characterized the church at Corinth. And yet Paul is writing to this church that fights. I love it. He says, greet each other with a holy kiss. I could spend an hour on this alone. But we need to see the simple principle of what he's saying here. You know, is it possible that affection could serve as a remedy to the tremendous personal isolation that so many people feel today? You know, the, the holy kiss was this cultural expression of simply being warm and kind to one another. Do you ever get the cold shoulder from people? Especially in the church. I have, and it's not very Christian in the least. Here Paul's telling people, he's saying, hey, you, you need to loosen up. You need to be forgiving. You need to be warm. You need to be caring. You know, <laughs> you can ask the question, why is this custom of kissing one another on the cheek faded away from the church? You know, was it simply just something that was cultural? Well, maybe, but yet when I look at it, there are still many Christian and cultures that pr practice this. I, I sometimes wonder if it's faded away in North America because it was, it was liable to forms of abuse, and I kid you not. You know, some people had trouble distinguishing between holy kisses and other kinds, if you know what I'm saying. You know, secondly, it, it, it faded because the church, in my opinion, as the church grew and as we became more of a mega in structure, uh, it became less and less of a fellowship. Think about it this way. 
in little house churches where we meet with friends, where we're all bound close together. The kiss on the cheek is, or the holy kiss is, is, is the most natural thing in the world to do. It's just like when we meet people today, it's as natural as a hug. But when the little fellowship started to turn into a vast congregation, when, when houses gave way to cathedrals, right, I think the intimacy was lost, and, and, and with it, that, that holy kiss vanished. Now, again, the kiss, of course, is, is not the important thing. The important thing, the, the important principle is the hug. It's, it's the warm, two-handed handshake. It's, it's an arm around the shoulder that, that can express the same feelings, the same endearment. And, uh, and in some cultures, actually might even be more appropriate than a holy kiss. The key is the love and the intimacy that the gesture symbolizes. I'm writing this, and I thank you. Like, who needs a, a hug or a, a holy kiss from you today? Especially during this time of pandemic stranger danger. Now, again, I'm not telling you, hey, go out and start hugging everybody. And I'm not saying hugs and non-masks. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying is that there are people out there who are craving human contact. And so how, in spite of us in this lockup, are you going to be able to communicate that you love others, especially within the body of Christ? And Paul boils down everything he has said in this passage and in this letter to one single word, and that's love. And then he simply provides a little personal note in verse 21. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. I find this very amusing because then you've got to think about it. This guy's writing the whole letter, you know, we might have very easily just sort of passed over this as being insignificant, but it's actually very important. You know, if, if his words were paraphrased in the terminology of our culture, Paul would say, look at it, you know, I'm, 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 I greet you with my, my own handwriting. I'm not using my computer, you know. Uh, of course, there's no computers in his day, but there was a, a human equivalent. They had a secretary or a scribe. There's a special name for it. Uh, that sort of, and so what, he's, what would take place is that sometimes Paul would, you know, be like an executive and dictate a letter to the secretary and then signs it at the bottom. Uh, his point is this. Look at I picked up the quill and the papyrus, and I wrote this myself, and I'm signing off on it. And he writes it in his own hand. And it validates the letter as coming from him personally, not anybody else. He actually expects these people to recognize his own handwriting in this. And furthermore, I believe he, he does show them how much he cares to take the time to write this massive letter. And there's something about this personal note that no email, no text can reproduce. And Paul has gone to considerable effort to communicate with these saints in Corinth that are messed up that he deeply cares about him, them. And if anybody just wants to think that Paul's all warm and fuzzy at the end of the letter, then let's, um, let's keep moving and some, take note of some somber words in verse 22. If anyone doesn't love the Lord, let that person be cursed. <laughs> Hello? Like, where does that come from? Paul just pronounces a curse on those who don't love the Lord. And this is virtually the same uh, words found in his letter to Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. You know, since 
you know, he's writing to the church in Corinth. We have to understand, remember, he's writing to the church. That letter is being read in the church. He's not cursing the unbelievers of Corinth in general, right? That letter is being read, and now Paul's pronouncing a curse upon those who falsely claim to be believers but are actually really unbelieving sinners within the church. You know, he can't pronounce a blessing on such people, but he, a curse he does. These people are the ones who are living in unrepentant sin, and they're promoting it in the church. How awkward to be there and to be one of those individuals when this is being read. And this is a not-so-subtle warning for any person in the church who, who doesn't accept the corrections of the letter. Remember, he's correcting people. And Paul very clearly distinguishes between saints and unbelievers. And the difference he indicates here is that the saints love the Lord. And by inference, the rest don't. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not a judgment I want to be made about me. And I think Paul's words to us have to be sobering. Um, and I think at first read, when I read that, it, it, it almost sounds unloving. But when you think about it, after all that we have been through, all that he has written, it's really not. Paul loved this Corinthian church too much to let them continue embracing a lack of love for God. He was willing to say, when you think about it, the hard things, knowing it's painful, but ultimately beneficial. You know, we often equate love with niceness, right? And again, 1 Corinthians, it's all nice, it's all fluffy, it's all like that. But true Christian love so shows itself best in conflict. Think about that. And this is how God loves us. And so Christians can love each other enough to say sometimes the hard things when necessary. And to receive hard things when necessary. And then immediately following the curse, Paul gives a watchword. The NIV translates it as, come, O Lord. But depending on the way the word is divided, it, it's something either like a prayer or, uh, or a greeting. And it's something that was obviously common amongst the earliest Christians. It's an Aramaic word which has been translated into Greek, and it's Maranatha. So to us, it's one word, but again, it's broken down. So divided one means, one way it means uh, our Lord has come, which could be a, a greeting or a statement of faith. If it's divided another way, it means, you know, come, O Lord, or our Lord, come. You know, come quickly, Jesus, which would be actually more fitting, in my opinion, as a prayer and even hope. And then Paul gives a blessing of God's grace. Something that the church then needed and something that is continually needed by the church today. And he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Simple, to the point. And for those who have trusted in, in Jesus Christ for salvation, there, there is the blessing of God's grace. That, that grace is initially experienced in the forgiveness of our sins. It's subsequently to be experienced by the Christian every moment of every day. We walk in grace constantly. The most loving act that we can perform when you think about it is to show people God's grace, right? First, we share God's grace in salvation. And this means informing people that, 
that God's love is not based on our own merit, but on Jesus Christ's merit. And we receive salvation the same way um, uh, we would receive a Christmas gift, right? We simply open it up. We open our hands. We receive it. We express gratitude. Thank you. But we also need to be messengers. We also need to be dispensers of grace to others. And this means that we not only proclaim God's grace and salvation to those who have yet to believe, but we exemplify God's grace in being gracious to all. And it is with this blessing and the insurance of his love that Paul concludes his letter. And then as you would expect, he says that he loves them. And he says, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. So be it. In spite of all their problems, Paul still loved these people. Paul knew that there's some of these people who were ornery. And uh, some of them made his life incredibly difficult. And yet he still sends his love to all of them. And the church at Corinth was worth caring about. It was worth praying for. It was worth correcting. It was worth building up. And in reality, when you think about it, Jesus doesn't have any perfect Christians or any perfect churches, right? Paul wanted the best for them. And all the criticism and all the resistance and the pain that they inflicted upon him, and what? He doesn't throw back bitterness. After all, he addressed all their problems. And he lets this messed up dumpster fire of a church know that he still loves them. Isn't that humbling? Paul wrote 13 letters. And this is the only one that he ends with an affirmation of his love for his readers. It's amazing when you think of the church to which he expressed it. The church that resisted him the most. That was the most fractured in his love life. And but he says, I love you. And not just in himself because of the but but also because of the relationship he has with Christ that has transformed his own life. And, and it's out of that, it is out of that he can express his love for the church because he knows that the only kind that's the only kind of love that lasts. The only kind of love that actually makes a difference. The only kind of love that's actually tough enough to survive in the face of the personal rejection and insult he has experienced from this church. So who do you need to express love to today? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to come alongside of? Who do you need to serve or who do you need to reach out to? The church will advance in our world when we show love for one another. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said, all men will know that we are his disciples by the love that we have for one another. Love is the remedy. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the practicality of this session, how it helps us in our living today in this 21st century world. I pray that we may never forget that we go with a living God who works with us and walks beside us, every one of us, all through the day. Father, help us to use logic and reason that you, and intelligence that you have given us to make our plans, to adjust our plans according to the circumstances. 
Help us to be on guard, to stand firm in the faith, to be courageous, to be strong, and to do everything in love. Help more and more of us devote ourselves to serve the Lord's people so that we may be able to refresh the spirit of others. And help us to look for ways to greet and to encourage others. Help us to learn to add that personal touch that adds warmth and meaning to a gesture. And help us to set our hope not on a comfortable life in this world, but to be united to our Lord Jesus when he returns. And Father, we need your help. We need grace, and we need a lot of it. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us. Amen. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for the blessing. Those received the blessing did likewise. So if you want a blessing, just put your hands in the air, and here it is. Soul Sanctuary. May you stand firm in the faith and act in a way that does not dishonor the name of Jesus. May you be alert to the evils that surround you and my brothers and sisters in Christ. May God help you to withstand the attacks of the devil and be alert of his evil ways. But may you never compromise the truth of the gospel of grace, but may you be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And may all you say be done in love. Now go, love your neighbor, wear your mask, wash your hands, and live the church. And we'll see you next week.